Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's about your life right now today. This fact that I can trust in Him and that His power can work in and through me. And I don't have to do this Christian thing. I can rest. I can abide. We're in a series entitled Building on the Basics. It's a careful study of the New Testament books of James, First and Second Peter, First, Second, and Third John, and the book of Jude. We're looking at the overarching theme of each of those books and how to build them into our lives and build our faith in Jesus Christ. To rest in, to trust in, to be still in. His presence, aware of His power in your life, and just trust in that very fact. I can just abide in God. Currently, we're in 1 John, building on the basic of love and how to walk in it. For the last couple of weeks, Pastor Clay has been in 1 John chapter 2, looking at more of the tests that John laid out for determining what a true follower of Jesus Christ looks like. If it is real, if it's truly what you have done in your heart and life, then God the Holy Spirit came to dwell within you the second, the moment you professed Christ as your Savior. In today's message, Pastor Clay is going to walk us through one more test in 1 John chapter 2, and it's what he refers to as the rest test. The Apostle John encourages believers to abide in Christ. Just exactly what does that mean, and what does it look like in our lives? To remain, to stay, to stand fast, to dwell, to continue, to wait, to last, to endure, to be permanent, to abide. And then, time permitting, Pastor Clay is going to take us on into chapter 3 of 1 John and show us the importance of having the right attitude toward God and toward the world. There's a lot to get to, so let's get started. Thanks for joining us today as we continue to discover what it means when we say, it's not about a religion, it's about a relationship. been in First John uh, chapter 2 for several uh, weeks now, and some of it's because of some other things we had going on, and so maybe preaching time was a little bit shorter than the normal, some of it's because of the content and things that just needed to be uh, discussed, but uh, unless the Lord takes me home before this service ends, we will get through First John chapter 2 uh, today, um, and if you happen to use your outline, if you'd like to take notes on the back of the, the information sheet is an outline. That lower part, 1 John chapter 3, just forget about that. We're not even getting close to it uh, today. The more I worked on this last night, the more I was thinking about it and praying through it and, and going over it and everything. And I kept, you know, other things about this last part of 1 John chapter 2 that I thought I would just, you know, mention in passing and then and move on. It's just too much stuff that's really important uh, to talk about today. We have been in 1 John chapter 2 for a while. And uh, for the last uh, two, and this now third week, we've basically been in verses 15 through 29, through the end of the chapter. And we're, we're building on these basics. That's why I hope you're okay with the fact that it takes, it's taken some time to go through this. But we're building this foundation, this basic of, of my faith in Jesus Christ. And what are these basics that I need to have in my life? Certainly faith. And we looked at that in the book of uh, James. Uh, uh, Certainly, what did, we, what did we cover in, in Peter? Hope. Certainly hope. We need to have hope in our lives. And we talked about that in First and Second Peter. And now love. Obviously, that's an essential part of, really should be of anybody's life. But obviously, as a follower of Jesus Christ, our lives should be loving. Would you not agree? All right. Are y'all all right? Do I need to gather y'all up to the middle or, or y'all going to be okay? Okay. All right. Listen. Um, so... Uh, 
I'm not going to get to chapter 3, and so I'm going to take just a second to mention a couple things about the previous ideas that we've looked at in verses 15 to 29. Open your Bibles, 1 John chapter 2, text is up on the screen as well, but uh, cover, just rehash a couple of ideas. Uh, it's really important that you get these ingrained in your heart and in your mind, and then we'll move on to the last idea this morning, which I pray uh, is, ends up being really, really important for your life. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we started with this uh, idea. Uh, we talked about the danger of the world in verses 15 through 19 of 1 John chapter 2. And I'm going to read the text uh, to you again. Uh, it says, do not love the world. Do not love the world. And as we talked about then, it's not talking about, you know, the earth. It's not talking about God's creation. It's talking about a, a world system, a system that works in, uh, apart from God and, and, as I said then, really in opposition to God. And, and you don't listen. It doesn't take a spiritual guru to figure out what that means. The, the, the world, by and large, operates uh, apart from God. And, and as I said, really, much of it is in opposition to God and in the way people live and the choices they make and, and all that kind of stuff. Do you all understand what I'm saying? Would you agree? You understand what the world system is? Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the, say it, world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives, say it, forever. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared, the, the spirit, his spirit, the opposition to God. And from this we know that it is the very last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. It's the danger of the world, and, and, and it's, 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 we're immersed in it, we live in it, it's, the, it's our reality 24-7, uh, the, the, the world system, the, it's, it's in our education, it's, it's in our workplace, it's just everything that we are, and we're bombarded with it from, from radio and television and, and wherever all those means of, of influence come from, it's just part of the world in which we live in. And one of the things I talked about a few weeks ago is that, that one of the things that you and I have to do is to beware of, of the world's idols. And if you were here, you may remember I said an idol is not just a little stone carving or a little wood carving. Anything can and does become an idol in my life when it takes priority over God. So listen, this may sound harsh, but a family member can become an idol. Your spouse can become an idol. A sport can become an idol. Uh, uh, an activity can be become an idol. Uh, your, uh, your work can become an idol. Anything that takes precedent, takes priority over God and his place in your life, that thing can become an idol. And listen, you understand? Satan, the one who's kind of working this whole thing, he doesn't care. He doesn't care what you make your idol as long as it takes your attention, your focus off of the one true God. He is therefore at that moment stealing God's glory, stealing the worship that belongs to God. He doesn't care where you place it because ultimately it's not on God. And that, that's his goal. Do you understand? So you, ha you just have to be aware of that. Beware of the world's idols. And the second thing that John brings out is that we have to the, just be aware that the world is temporary. 
and I said it, I know I'm repeating myself, but why do we use so much effort and energy and resources, so much time, all of our lives we spend on something that's not even going to be here? It's passing away. That's what John says. So he says, listen, just there's a danger that we can get sucked into that. And the people that do get sucked into it and, and, and go away. And John makes this little, uses this little phrase in there. You, if you caught it as I read it, he said, they went out from us. Do y'all, y'all, did y'all see that? They went out from us. He's talking about people that abandon the faith. They, they act like they come to Jesus. Maybe they're excited about it at first. But eventually they, they, they go back out and they walk away from their faith and they're not interested in it anymore. And listen, John, John's not just pulling that out of a hat. He's getting that from his time with Jesus. There's this story, a parable, really, that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 8. I meant to give it to you a couple weeks ago. I just forgot, but I wanted you to see it uh, today so that you understand the basis from which John is coming. Luke chapter 8, Jesus has what's called the parable of the sower. And it says this, it says, When a large crowd was coming together, and those from the various cities were journeying to him, to Jesus, he spoke by way of a parable. A parable is a, is a story laid alongside of a truth. It's, it's, it's meant to, to uh, express that truth to those that really wanted it. And for those that weren't interested, it, it, would, it would conceal that, that truth. He spoke by way of a parable. The sower, and here's the parable. He said, the sower went out to sow seed. And as he sowed, some fell beside the road. And it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil. And as soon as it grew up, it withered away. Because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, Jesus says, Guys, are, are you listening to what I'm saying? I'm telling this story, but there's a deeper truth. Are you listening? So, of course, as soon as he tells that story, all the disciples come, you know, when they get a chance, they come running up. Okay, what, what, what is it? What, what, what are you saying? <laughs> so, and picking it up, I think, in verse 11. Uh, now, the parable is this. He explains to it. Now, here, here's the parable, guys. The seed is the word of God. And the story I just told you about seed being casted, that represents the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. But then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart. So they will not believe and be saved. So many people I've tried to share Christ with that, that fall in that category. Just, ah. Eh. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. Sounds good to them. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while. And in time of temptation, they fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they're choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. That's the world. It's just, it pulls. And it brings no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, hold it fast, and bear fruit with perseverance. Virtually all conservative scholarship is agreed that in Jesus' parable, Only the good soil represents those who are actually authentically in a relationship with Jesus Christ. They went out from us. It's a a danger. And and John is saying to those that he he thinks are believers, he says, you've got to be aware of this. There are those that are going to claim that they know Christ or act like they know Christ or do this or that. But in time, you'll, you'll see what really is. 
Okay, the second uh, idea that we brought up was this. It's the deception of bad theology in verse uh, 20. Y'all still okay? You're right? Listen, verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. We'll, get, we'll come to that. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I've not written you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. It, it, it's, it's the deception of false theology, and it, is, it was in the world in John's time, and we've discussed some of those false uh, teachings, some of that heresy that was rising up then, and it's still true today. I, I'm not going to go into a lot of depth about this, except just to say that, that it's just a reality. There'll always be people who want to skew the truth, change the truth, distort the truth to make it more something that's palatable, something better for them, something they like better, something that will get a, people, a group of people to follow them, whatever the case may be. You have to be aware that there is bad theology out there. All right? And I know if you were here uh, when we covered this, I know I threw the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses under the bus. But, and then I, then I drove over them, and then I put in reverse and backed over them again. And, and, if, and, and, and you're thinking, and if you were thinking, man, that's kind of harsh. That's kind of harsh, Pastor Clay. I'm sorry. I'm a pastor. And it is my job to point out lies and to point you to truth. And there, there can be some exceptions, but listen, here's what, here's what you can look for. Generally, in one way or another, or maybe in some combination thereof, you'll usually find that, that false theology or bad theology will have a couple of things in common. Like I said, there could be some, some other things. But in general, what you'll, what you'll tend to find is that, in, that they will deny the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. This, this is a common thing in bad theology. Deny the exclusivity. And Jesus is the only... What do you mean Jesus is the only way? What? What about all those people over in the other half of the world that never even heard of Jesus? They will deny the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That'll be, that's a, something you'll see in bad theology. Second idea was this. They deny the equality of God the Son and God the Father. In some way, you know, well, you've got the Father and then the Son. You know, it's, it's, like, it's, like, uh, it's like us. Like I, I'm a father and my son. He, he's less than me. Your son would probably beg to differ. But, <laughs> but no, no. That's not, it's, it, there's this equality between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and any teaching that changes that, denies that, moves away from that, you can just mark it down as uh, bad theology. Okay, all right. Third idea this morning is, is really important. It has to do with, with decisions in our lives. I, I mentioned a moment ago we were talking about uh, Memorial Day and, and that sort of thing. And I was thinking about the decisions that we make in our lives and, and how those decisions can affect our lives in one way or another. Have you thought about the decisions that you've made or perhaps the decisions that you didn't make in your life and, and how your life might have changed or been different if you had done this or if you hadn't done this or if you'd gone in this direction and not gone in that direction? Decisions can be important. And I was thinking Friday night I was watching on TV, Memorial Day weekend, and so the longest day was on. Some of y'all have seen the longest, some, some of you older people have seen the longest day, right? It's a World War II, it's a World War II movie. It's a long movie. And, it's, and the, the whole movie is about one single day, June 6th, 1944, when, when the Allied uh, troops uh, stormed the beaches of Normandy and began the assault on, moved towards Berlin and, and the defeat of, of Nazism uh, and, and the end of World War II. 
right? Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, you may, and, and listen, I'll say this. The, the beach scene in The Longest Day where they storm the beach, it may not be of the same intensity as Saving Private Ryan, but I'm telling you, it's a pretty powerful scene where they're, where they're storming those beaches, especially for the day that this, this was made. It's an all-star cast. and It really is, is a, uh, a good film uh, that I recommend. But um, I, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about the fact that thousands, literally tens of thousands of young men Storm that beach that day in the face of withering machine gun fire and mortars and whatever else the Germans could, could throw at them. They did it knowing that there was a high probability that they would die that day. High probability that they would die. But they did it. Anyway. They made a decision. And the decision they made was that evil needed to be defeated and that freedom was worth fighting for. And so they made a decision. And for all of them, I would say it changed everything decisions can be important. I'm saying about my decisions that I've made in my life. Some, some decisions aren't as big as others, right? Whether you go to McDonald's or Burger King, it's, that's probably not that big a deal. But I'm about this, the decision I made to, to leave the postal service and to go into ministry many years ago now, and how that changed and affected my life and my family's life. The decision to move to North Carolina to, to go to school and end up in North Carolina. The decision to to start a cross-culture church, how those decisions can affect me and my future, how they affect my family, and to a large extent, how even some of my decisions have affected some of you. Decisions. Here's the decision I want to talk about this morning. It is the decision to abide. In verse 24, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which He Himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from Him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Six times in six verses, John uses the phrase or the word abide. Meno in the Greek. According to the complete biblical library, the verb means to remain, to stay, to stand fast, to dwell, to abide, to continue, to wait, to last, to endure, to be permanent, to abide. By the way, John is not uh, down on teachers here. He's not saying that we don't need teachers. In fact, he is teaching them as he's writing this. So he, he can't be saying, don't listen to me when I'm telling you not to listen to anybody. What he's, what he's saying is that if it's real, if it's genuine, if this thing that you have, this relationship with God, if it, if it is true, if you have truly been born again and come into the family of God, then you have received the, John says, you have received the anointing, chrisma 
Interestingly enough, although a few of you will care, (laughs) interestingly enough, the word is only used three times in the entire New Testament. All three times are right here in 1 John chapter 2. John must think this is important. Chrisma, you have received the anointing. Well, what is the anointing? What does that mean? Well, some people may have some different ideas about it, but if you take this idea of the anointing in conjunction with uh, John writing, Jesus' teaching in, uh, in John chapter 14, John chapter 16, about the paraclete, about the, about the one who would come alongside, about the, the comforter who would lead you into all truth and, and teach you, it seems a pretty safe assumption uh, to, to say that, that John is referring to the anointing being the coming of the Holy Spirit to dwell within you at conversion. You get me? In other words, when you receive Christ as your Savior, if it is real, if it is authentic, if it's truly what you have done in your heart and life, then God the Holy Spirit came to dwell within you the second, the moment you professed Christ as your Savior. Fireworks, you know, may not have gone off. Lightning may not have struck. But based on the truth of God's Word, His Spirit came to dwell within you. And what John is saying is, if you have received the anointing, if the Spirit of God has come to dwell within you, then if, here listen to me, if, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, if you will listen to Him, He will keep you from straying off into heresy. He will not allow you to go. He will help you recognize when something is not true, when something is true, that's part of what the Spirit of God does in us. He enlightens us, He he. He informs us. He moves us in a direction that is toward truth and away from a lie. If we will slow down and listen, he will speak. He will help you to know what is truth and what is not truth. So John says, all you have to do is abide in him. It is to to rest in, to trust in to be still in His presence, aware of His power in your life, and just trust in that very fact. I can just abide in God. Think about your life. Think about your life for a moment. At work, at school, at home, overbooked, overextended, overworked, maybe even just plain over it. Would you say that you abide in him? See, it's not just the salvific aspect. That's what we understand. It's not just about salvation. It's about, it's about your life right now today, guys, ladies. And this, this fact that I can trust in him and that his power can work in and through me. And I don't, I don't have to, to do this thing. I don't have to do this Christian thing. I can rest. I can abide I've been thinking, um, I'll be gone for the next uh, two weeks. Uh, Rick Freeman and uh, Travis Stevens and myself leave this Friday for uh, uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, going there to, uh, to see ways that we can be involved in the, the spread of the gospel to billions of people. Working with a family that, that comes out across culture church that's serving over there. So I've been thinking a lot uh, about that part of the world. And I was, I was thinking about... Uh, Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a pioneer a missionary uh, to China. 
he goes there. It's late 1800s. He's struggling. It's tough. His conditions are terrible and spiritual apathy, and there's fighting within the, the families and the missionaries, and, and he's got all these responsibilities and, and all this kind of stuff, and he, he really reaches this absolute breaking point in his life. And to hear him tell it, he even contemplates the idea of suicide. And it's just, it's just tough. And something happens in his life. He receives a letter from another missionary who had been in a similar situation not long before. And the story is told in a book that I read years ago called They Found the Secret. It's just, it's an amazing, was for me an amazing book at its time. But, but I want to read you this, this story and what happens as a result of it. And this is, uh, this is Hudson himself. He's, he's, this is after this has happened. He's writing a letter to his sister about what happened to him, okay? As to work, mine was never so plentiful, so responsible, or so difficult. But the weight and strain are all gone. The last month or more has been perhaps the happiest of my life. And I long to tell you a little of what the Lord has done for my soul. I do not know how far I may be able to make myself intelligible about it, for there is nothing new or strange or wonderful, and yet all is new. In a word, whereas once I was blind, now I see. When my agony of soul was at its height, a sentence in a letter from dear McCarthy was used to remove the scales from my eyes, and the Spirit of God revealed the truth of our one, of our oneness with Jesus as I had never known it before. McCarthy, who had been much exercised by the same sense of failure, but saw the light before I did, wrote, and I quote from memory, but how to get faith strengthened? Not by striving after faith, but by resting on the faithful one. As I read, I saw it all. If we believe not, he abideth faithful. And I looked to Jesus and saw, and when I saw, oh, how joy flowed that he had said, I will never leave you. Ah, there is the rest, I thought. I have striven in vain to rest in him. I've worked at this thing. I'll strive no more. For it is not, for he has not promised to abide with me. For has he not? To never leave me, never to fail me. And dearie, he never will. But this was not all. He showed me, nor one half, as I thought of the vine and the branches. And he goes on into a deeper description of all that happened and, and how God was speaking to him through his word. And, and then the, the story goes like this. Many years after Hudson Taylor's meeting with the Lord Jesus in that little crowded house in Chin Kai, an Anglican clergyman, the Reverend H.B. McCartney of Melbourne, Australia, added this testimony to that of many others regarding the missionary's possession of life that is Christ. He was an object lesson in quietness. He drew from the bank of heaven every farthing of his daily income. My peace I give unto you. Whatever did not agitate the Savior or ruffle his spirit was not to agitate him. The serenity of the Lord Jesus concerning any matter, and at its most critical moment, this was his ideal and practical possession. He knew nothing, watch this, he knew nothing of rush or hurry or quivering nerves or vexation of spirit he knew there was a peace passing all understanding and that he could not do without it. It is abiding in the presence of God in your life. So much so that it affects every area of your life. John chapter 14, Jesus said this, But the Helper, 
will teach you everything and will cause you to remember all that I told you. This helper is the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. I leave you peace. My peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world does, so don't let your hearts be troubled or afraid. Do you hear what he's saying? Think about your own life. Where are you in the midst of all of this? He says, I don't give you peace the way the world gives it to you. The world gives you peace if the kids are healthy and acting right. The world gives you peace if, if the job is good and going well. The, wor- well. the world gives you peace if you have a, enough money. Well, check that. If you have more money, because it's never enough, right? In other words, the world gives you peace based on the circumstances of your life, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Your relationships, your this, your that. That's how the world tends to give us peace. God says, listen to me, God says, guys, I can do way better than that. I can give you peace that is not held captive by your circumstances, but is instead based on my power and my strength working in you and flowing out of you. And God's saying, he says, will you trust me? Will you abide in me? In the midst of all the chaos that is going on in your life, will you just learn to abide? Let me give you, quickly, some results that come from this idea of abiding in Him. First one is this, is the promise of eternal life. That's what John says, the promise of eternal life. In verse uh, 25, it said, And this is the promise of which he himself made to us. Would you say it? Say it. Eternal life. This is the promise that he has made to us. Eternal life. Listen, no, no matter what, no matter what you go through, no matter what it is, no matter what you have to experience here, there is always the promise of there. There is always the promise that when this life, however long or short it is, is over, that for those who have committed their life to Jesus Christ, there is something greater. There is something beyond the grave. There is something that that every culture instinctively seems to know is true. That this life, your life, this mortal flesh is not it. It's not the end. There's something more to it. I don't know know how many of you have read... Uh, Don Piper's book or, or seen the movie that was made uh, about the book, about his life, uh, 90 Minutes in Heaven. But Don Piper uh, was a, a pastor who was coming back from a conference uh, a number of years ago and he was involved in a head in, head-on collision with a, a semi-tractor trailer, hit him head-on. Don Piper died. He was pronounced dead at the scene. 90 minutes later, he miraculously came back to life, Apparently. Don Piper claims that he spent those 90 minutes in heaven. And one of the things he talks about in the book, and that the, the, book, the movie does a good job of bringing out as well, is the anger that he had to deal with in his life. Anger that he had to deal with in his life. And you think, well, well, God spared his life. Why would he be angry about that? Certainly part of the anger was based on what he had to come back to. Months and months and months in the hospital, dozens and dozens of surgeries, physical limitations that he lives with to this day and will for the rest of his life, pain that you and I can't even imagine he endured. So perhaps there was some anger about that, but one of the things that he talks about in the book is that one of the things that he became so angry about is that he had been to heaven, he experienced it, he had seen it, and he couldn't understand why he couldn't stay. 
And he was mad, mad at God. Because in heaven, he says, it's, it's absolute pure contentment, absolute full joy, absolute peace. Imagine absolute, no end, never ending peace in your life. Beauty beyond description. Presence of, of loved ones and friends who've gone on before you who knew Christ as their Savior. And of course, the presence of the Savior. And he was mad about it. Listen, eternal life. And how do you, how do you, how do you put a value on that? How can he not be changed by that very aspect that I, well, it, 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 it's bad now, but I know where I'm going. I know what's up there. I know we don't understand all of it. I know we don't have all the answers. But God himself, as John says, this is what he's promised you, eternal life. That comes from abiding in him. Here's a second idea. Purpose for this life. Look what he says uh, in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. There's that word keeps showing up. So that when he appears, so that when he comes back, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Have you ever thought about if you're, if you're alive when Jesus comes back? All right, and I don't know how many of us will be, or maybe none of us, maybe all of us, but if you thought about when, when Jesus comes back, have you ever thought about if he comes back in your lifetime while you're still here, what will he find you doing when, when he gets here? You ever thought about that? That's probably a weird thing, only something a preacher would think about or something. But think about what, what will I be doing when Jesus comes back? If you're a teenager or a young adult, probably at least some of your time is spent thinking about what you're supposed to do with your life. If you're middle-aged or thereabouts, it's not uncommon for some of your time to be spent thinking about what you have done with your life, what you've accomplished with your life. If you're in the latter stages of your life, you wouldn't be the first person to question whether what you've done has made any difference at all or whether it's been a complete waste of your time. But listen to me. Listen to me. Whatever stage of life you are in, baby boomer, baby buster, Gen Xer, millennial, whatever skin color, black, white, pink, polka dotted, whether you're a blue collar worker or a white collar worker, no matter your, your relational status in life, no matter your health, no matter your wealth, no matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, no matter what, no matter what, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, your purpose for life is very simple. To know Him and to make Him known. That's it. That's it. To know him and to make him known in your life. And listen to me, if you will do that, if you understand that, if you say, God, that's what I need in my life. I, I, I want to I know him. I, I, I want to make him known. If you, if you make that the, 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 the priority and, and, and the passion, the purpose of your life, then I promise you on the authority of God's word, I promise you that you will have more joy more contentment, more fulfillment, more satisfaction, more everything than, than the, the richest, most powerful, 
most famous person on the entire earth, I promise you, on the authority of God's word. You'll have life and you'll have it abundantly and you will lack for nothing. And it's hard to put a price tag on what that is worth. I I don't know if you all have read the fabulous book, I Get It, Discovering, Discovering How to Really Live. Man, I'm really trying to do this without smiling. Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. But in this book, the author whoever that brilliant person is, tells this, <laughs> tells this story. If you've, read, if, you've read, if you've read my book, then maybe you remember it. But I, I, I want to read it to you. I want to read you this, this story about a lady that I met when I was a mailman in Tennessee. Her name is Jean. It starts like this. If I can find it. So what does it look like? It's talking about what does it look like to have these promises of God in, in your life? What does it look like when you get it? Let me introduce you to Jean. Back when I worked for the post office, I would sometimes deliver mail to Jean. When I knew her, Jean was perhaps in her 50s or 60s. But as a young girl, she had contracted a disease that, over time, left her legs and hands disfigured and without function, and often with a great deal of pain. Jean lived alone in a little wooden house on a dead-end street behind a grocery store. She spent her days in a hospital bed inside a bedroom maybe six by eight feet at best with a small window, one small window above her head, above the bed. Someone would come in for part of the day and prepare meals for Jean and do the things that had to be done for her. But basically, Jean's days were spent in that little bed inside that little room, inside that little house on that little dead-end street behind the grocery store. None of us, and I mean none of us, would want Jean's circumstances. Nobody in his or her right mind would ask to go through what Jean had to go through every single day of her life. But every one of us would be better off if we had Jean's outlook on life. I have rarely, if ever, met someone as joyous, as content, and as full of life as Jean. She loved to smile, she loved to laugh. And Jean loved to talk about Jesus. She always had words of encouragement for those who came to visit her, and she never talked about her trials or circumstances. If you went to visit Jean, you might think you were blessing her, and no doubt she appreciated the visit, but you always left Jean's house knowing that you were the one who had really been blessed. Almost every day after school, neighborhood children would go over to Jean's house. She had someone put cookies out before the children got there, All the kids would cram into that little bedroom and Jean would read them Bible stories and ask them about their day. She would laugh and smile and tell each one of them how special they were and how much God loved them. I have no doubt that Jean lived with a fair amount of pain on a daily basis, but you would never know it being around her. There was a joy, a peace, and a contentment to Jean's life that defies logic. How could anybody enjoy a life trapped in such circumstances? How could anybody smile and laugh in the face of adversity? Was Jean delusional? Was she living in denial? Or could it be something else? Is it possible that Jean was actually living in the reality of God's promises? Promises that aren't tied to life situations or our circumstances, but are able to meet us right smack dab in the middle of them and give us victory over whatever life throws at us. Jean's body may have been trapped in that room, but her life certainly wasn't. Jean got it. Her life had meaning and purpose. Her life was productive. She lived in the presence and with the peace and power of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. 
She had a ministry that touched hundreds, if not thousands of lives through the years. She laughed, she loved, and she lived. Like I said, nobody would want that life, but anybody would want what she had. True contentment comes from abiding in him. That is your purpose, ladies and gentlemen. I know I, know I got to close this thing out. Let me just say this to you. I hope somebody's sitting there thinking, okay, preacher man, I hear you. So what, how do I do that? How do I, how do I know him and make him known? Tell me how. Maybe, just maybe, could start with this idea. Tomorrow morning, when you wake up, before you get out of bed, maybe you might consider praying something like this. God, I want to know you. I don't want to just play at this thing. I want to know you personally. I want to know you intimately. I want to sense your presence and experience your power in my life. I want to know you. And God, I want to make you known to others, family members, friends, neighbors, co-workers, people in this country, and people around the world. Father, I surrender myself, all of myself, to be used by you anywhere, anytime, any way that you know is best to help others know you more. Amen. That's just the way I put it. It doesn't have to be like that. But if you really want to abide in him, if you really want to know him and to make him known, then I challenge you to pray that prayer tomorrow morning and every morning before you get out of bed and see what God does. See what God does. It is the purpose of life. And then, in closing, one more. It's the purity in my life. It's just part of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. In verse 29, it says, If you know that he is righteous, and I think we would all agree, God is righteous, he's pure. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Practicing it meaning not not trying to be good in order to earn uh, God's uh, pleasure, not to earn God's favor, but because I've already been favored by his shed blood on the cross. And so in, in, in gratitude, I, I, I want to li- listen, before I came to Christ, I just tell you, sin was my master. Sin directed me in what I want to do with my life. After I came to Christ, that cha- I, wanted, I wanted Jesus Christ now to be my master. I want him to help me do that. I, I've, had people, I've had people say to me, man, if I, if I believe that whole Jesus thing and you just ask for forgiveness and he gives it to you and you, you can't lose your salvation, if I just believe that, if I, if I believe that stuff, man, I, 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 just, I just do anything I, I want to do. I always respond the same way. I always give them the same answer. I do. I do anything I want to do. But when I trusted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, and I made him my Savior and Lord, here's what happened. Jesus changed my want to. He just did. My life's not perfect, far from it. And sin is always crouching and ready and trying to jump into my life, but my desire is to live a life of purity, a life that would honor and please him and abide in his presence. It is, I didn't mention this earlier, but it is, what I refer to as, or John really, that's what I call it, is the rest test. Just resting in Him. Do you? 
Well, we certainly hope you profited from today's message in some way. We know people lead busy lives, so we appreciate it when you take time out to feed your spiritual need. One of the main things we are learning as we make our way through the book of 1 John is that just saying we love is easy. But as Pastor Clay said today, talk is cheap. Love, if it is real, is an action. When we truly love God and love others, the impact can last into eternity. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their life feel disconnected with the type of life and faith they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting. If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I Get It from Clay Stevens? They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where they will find what they're searching for. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. church for people like you. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.